Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thank you for joining us today on Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by Amy Bird and Carl Truman. And uh, today, we are having back again. We keep having this guy. Like, he and Michael Allen are are neck and neck with who's going to be the most frequent guest. Because they both keep writing books, Mm. is the thing. But our our guest today is uh, Danny Hyde. I'm going to call him Danny, not Daniel. But uh, Danny Hyde is our, our guest today. Uh, Danny is a, a pastor. He's pastor of Oceanside uh, United Reformed Church in California. He looks like a California mm-hmm. pastor. He talks like a California pastor, uh, but he writes like a Dutch Calvinist. Mm-hmm. How about that for uh, for an introduction? You mean in, in very bad English? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever read Van Til? I mean, <laughs> uh, Danny, thanks for coming on again with us today. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, there's there are no waves this morning as well, I'm here on here on location in Dortrecht. Oh, okay, because you're um you're finished. You're wrapping up a PhD, aren't you? Wrapping up is is uh, is putting it nicely. Okay, <laughs> so you're in the Netherlands at the moment, Danny. No, I'm just kidding. I'm oh, okay. Okay. Well, well, you I'm should just be feeling incredibly envious. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. Well, uh, what, what, what Danny would be doing what, talking to us? If there. What Danny is referencing by this uh, th- this veiled reference to Dortrick is that he has a new book. This is a thick book. This is a thicker yeah. uh, book, but it's called Grace Worth Fighting For: Recapturing the Vision of God's Grace in the Canons of Dort. Now, if if you're new to some of this, the Canons of Dort are where we get uh, the so-called five points of of Calvinism. But Danny. Um, tell our listeners just real briefly what is significant about the timing of the release of this book. Sure. Yeah, this, well, it's already passed, but this past yeah. year was uh, the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort, this gathering of theologians, pastors, uh, elders, politicians in the, the town of Dortrecht, uh, Dort, uh, in the Netherlands, just about an hour south or so of uh, Amsterdam. So, mm-hmm. Uh, a former anniversary of that uh, gathering where they were dealing with adjudicating the this case within the Dutch Reformed Church over the teachings of uh, the then deceased James Arminius, but his followers had protested uh, five key points of theology, the confession of the Reformed Church. So they obviously dealt with that, and uh, that's that's all she wrote, as they say. Yeah, yeah. Now, interestingly, and 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 you kind of mentioned it there. One of the things that uh, we in Presbyterian and Reformed churches oftentimes find ourselves having to explain to people is that John Calvin didn't invent the doctrines of grace as they are are, are summed up in the, yep. uh, in the quote, the five points. And neither did a group of, of theologians who just decided they really wanted to spoil everybody's <laughs> fun uh, by coming up with these doctrinal guidelines. But it was, it, it was very much in response to a series of errors. Are you sure about that? I, I'm, I quite sure. did um, quite sure. I'm quite sure. But, but uh, these, these quote, five points were five refutations of, of kind of what, what became the, the building blocks of Arminian theology as it related to, to God's grace. 
Yeah, is, is there a question in there? Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, Todd's well, just showing us all how much. Yeah, no, I just, I just wanted, I just wanted to hear uh, a PhD candidate tell me that I was right about something. Todd just got back from his general assembly. He's trying to uh, filibuster the whole interview here. (laughs) I just got back from from the PCA's general assembly. So I'm trying to fill my mind with reformed theology now. Yeah, we were thinking of we were thinking actually of interviewing him on the general assembly and closing with the music from Crowded House. Don't dream it's over. Uh, Yeah, well, I I can kind of figure out your question there. But yeah, so so Arminius, you know, himself. Uh, has followers like every professor. Carl would know this. And um, Many uh, they, they, uh, Arminius dies and these professors and theologians and pastors, they protest, you know, key things about predestination and the death of Christ and grace and, and uh, perseverance and sin. And so uh, those five points, these remonstrants, these protesting points get sort of disseminated and uh, sent around to all the different uh, chains of command, you know, in the, in the civil government, but also ecclesiastical, which leads to the synod uh, in 1618, 19 uh, in Dortrecht. And so, yeah, they, they, they respond to those five points, but one of my little screeds in the book at the beginning is, you know, there, there is no such thing as the five points of Calvinism. Right. There, there actually are four points in the, the response, because one of the points of the remonstrance of the Arminians, at least originally stated, wasn't objectionable. So they respond to those, you know, with, with four points. Um, and th- these aren't, you know, derived right from Calvin, right. Uh, you know, so, you know, five points of Calvinism. And these aren't even meant to be a standalone right. confession of faith that summarizes the whole of what it means to be reformed. Yeah, because it, we, we really have seen um the the rise of this um uh, kind of collapsing of of ideas to 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 where we now have definitions of what it means to be reformed yep. that the reformers probably would never have recognized uh, as being reformed so in other words if if you're a if you're a congregationalist baptistic charismatic who happens to have a, yeah, yeah premillennial, pre-millennial. <laughs> who happens to have a, a you know a high view of sovereignty god's sovereignty you're reformed Todd is yep. channeling uh, Scott Clark here, I think. <laughs> but, <laughs> Our friend but, Scott Clark. But you, yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 you, but 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 you're not down with the confessions. Yeah, yeah. As I I, I told a group of of people recently uh, dealing with this thing, I said, uh, you know, James Arminius was more reformed <laughs> than uh, your, your your favorite sort of new Calvinist. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, he had a higher ecclesiology, sacramental theology, Christology. I mean, all the all these things. And, you know, your, your favorite radio preacher who just happens to, uh, you know, write an article for Table Talk or whatever doesn't mean he's, he's necessarily reformed. <laughs> right, right. What it means to be reformed now is if you like John Piper, who isn't reformed, but if you like John Piper, you're reformed. You really have been reading Scott Clark recently. <laughs> <laughs> um, one part I really liked in the book, Danny, was um, how you talked about the Catholicity of the canons. Finally, a compliment. Jeez. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I thought it was really good how you did that too, Danny. <laughs> and, you know, as while I'm complimenting you, I, I want the <laughs> listeners to know that, okay, we're talking about history here and theology, which is all very exciting, but you also, you write in such a winsome way, uh, in a very pastoral way. And so the book is, even though it's a thick book, it's easy it is, yeah. reading, but um, I would like you to talk a little bit about the Catholicity of the canons for yeah. us. Yeah. Um, again, you know, this to me, it's, this is an important point to, to emphasize because of 
just where we sit today in our context where, you know, the, the so-called five points of Calvinism, you know, it's like a little cottage industry. Uh, and people think that, you know, these are quote unquote reformed distinctives. So in our little narrow reformed world, you know, you'll hear sermon series or you'll see little booklets get published or whatever about, you know, reformed distinctives, you know, what are the things that make us different from everybody else? Um, and usually it's these five points, you know, um, predestination, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, whatnot. But these five points are, these are ancient Christian doctrines. And these are things that had been discussed for a thousand years before the Synod of Dort, before the Reformation, uh, certainly before, you know, the, the TULIP acronym was created. And so try to, throughout the book, as I go through the articles of the, of the Synod of Dort, try to point people back to various uh, patristic, you know, ancient church uh, fathers or councils where these doctrines, you know, not exactly in the same precise form are are laid out, but the, the ideas of grace and predestination, you know, for whom did Christ die? Perseverance is an issue that's wrestled with throughout the history of the church. And so my thesis and my, my big point in the book is to show that number one, we want to recover this doctrine, but where does it come from? Well, it doesn't only come from Dort. Uh, we are, we are Catholics. We're small C Catholics, Christians, and these doctrines are things that we want to, you know, re-embrace because this is our inheritance too. Yeah. And even, um, who was represented there. Um, I, I love how you talk about just the ecumenicism within the whole synod. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, it's somewhat limited because, you know, we're dealing with Western Europeans uh, and the Reformation's not, you know, a worldwide phenomenon yet. But mm-hmm. uh, as far as, you know, their context, they had invited uh, theologians and pastors from all across the reformational world across Europe. So, you know, England, King James, you know, throws in a token Scotsman just to <laughs> appease and, uh, you know, Geneva, various parts of Germany, you know, what is today Germany, the Netherlands, of course, uh, the French aren't able to make it, but they're invited. And so, you know, all the different sort of areas where there was a reformed prince and there were reformed churches uh, get invited to bring together the best and the brightest of theologians of that time to deal with this issue. Uh, not because everybody themselves had been dealing with it in their own particular locality, but they all eventually were going to, uh, but, but they're all aware of what's going on, whether in England or uh, the Netherlands, uh, in Spain, with the Roman Catholics, these, these debates were happening uh, in various areas. And so they wanted to bring together people from across the spectrum uh, to, to, to deal with Arminius uh, and his followers. Now, Danny, the, the canons of Dort, of course, are, when I say a living document, I don't mean living document in the way that some people talk about the living constitution. It's a kind of hermeneutical yep. principle, but uh, the canons are alive and well as confessional standards in the, uh, among others, the United Reformed Church in which you yep. yourself are ordained and serve. What do you think the canons give you that uh, the Westminster standards don't? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, obviously, I would... I would I would want to affirm they 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 do say the same stuff in terms of the doctrinal you know loci of theology and whatnot, but the thing that they give us that are distinct, different, um, you know, maybe sort of uh, flushing things out a little bit more would be the the pastoral tone of them. So you know, dealing with perseverance of the saints, for example, the last point of doctrine, 
obviously we affirm not just the perseverance of the elect, but the perseverance of the saints, what's the Westminster standards themselves also affirm, but the way in which they're, they're formulated and expressed and explained, they deal with the real falls of real people. They deal with uh, the temptations and struggles that Christians, that believers uh, have, that saints have, um, and deal with all the, the very sort of ins and outs of, you know, to put it in our terms, like religious Christian psychology and, and uh, you know, what it means to be a human being, um, all the different elements of our, of our person are taken into account in terms of struggle, but also in terms of the grace of God, how they impact us and, they, and how they uphold us. So that practical sort of pastoral bent of them, which you wouldn't expect in a document that was just responding to, you know, five, you know, theological points, but they end up doing that because of the context in which they ministered where the remonstrant preachers and Arminians uh, 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 preachers were very, um, their language was meant to provoke people to fear and doubt uh, of the reformed faith so that they could, you know, grab hold of these people and change their minds. And so, you know, putting people in fear of, you know, Hey, what happens when my kid dies? Uh, what happens, you know, what happened when, you know, our, our uncle, uh, struggled with his faith? Did he lose his salvation? Uh, did God, you know, allow him to do that and so forth? So they're dealing with real people and real preachers in their time. And so they respond in that, in that way. Danny, what, um, in terms of just people who come out of a, a, a Wesleyan, um, Arminian background, What's the real essential, would you say, the essential difference between that Arminian, later Wesleyan understanding of, of for instance, you know, provenient grace with how uh, the, the Reformed confessions, what we believe is an accurate reflection of what the Bible teaches? What would be the essential difference there? I guess the way I would, I would put it is when we talk about grace, we're using grace as not a, not a thing, uh, not just a concept, mm-hmm. but we're, we're talking about God, right? right? We're talking about who God is, what does God do? How does he do it? And so grace is sort of, uh, you know, it's a code word for how God and is not, not just in his power, but uh, in his being father as being patient and kind, all those attributes. We're speaking about the way in which he works. And so, you know, when you, when you read, the 17th century remonstrant Arminian theologians and their theses and whatnot. And even today, you know, we talk a lot about grace. Uh, they talk a lot about grace, but oftentimes we can detach it from God and make it very impersonal and make it a thing, you know, that God kind of puts out there this provenient thing that, you know, he kind of covers you up with some stuff that helps you out a little bit. And then as long as you, you know, take the pill, I guess, eat the green pill, the blue pill, mm-hmm. not the red pill, whatever it is. Uh, yeah you know, as grace, you can, you know, make it to the end as opposed to saying, no, this is God, yeah. uh, God in his grace, God in his love, God in his, uh, favor, his overwhelming, lavish love, uh, himself is operating yeah. within the hearts and lives of, of real people to bring them, you know, to the ultimate realization of that, which is fellowship and communion with him forever. Yeah. Grace is not just a condition that he sets up, but grace is God acting. It is God working right. on our behalf. Yeah. Mm, I like that. Um, the book, I mean, when we're talking about something that happened 400 years ago, and I mean, <laughs> even, you know, the canons of 
Dort. I don't know. It sounds sounds very violent. Cannons. Sounds, sounds kind of, I don't know, not relevant today. Yep. So yep. like, why are they relevant today? And why are they still pastorally relevant today? Well, they're, they're dealing with things that we're still dealing with. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, you know, these were debates and struggles and uh, issues that had existed in the scriptures, in the New Testament especially. Uh, they were dealt with in the early church, medieval church, you know, at this time of the synod today. The issues of uh, who is God? You know, who are we? What does it mean to be a sinful human being? What does it mean to be saved from those sins? What does it mean to have fellowship with God? And so these are perennial topics that obviously uh, are never going to be 100% uh, you know, solved or we're not going to be in agreement across you know, all Christian professions until glory. But so they're relevant for that reason, number one. Mm-hmm. They're relevant also because, like I said earlier, uh, the way in which these particular uh, articles of faith are expressed and formulated they're not the only ways to, to express and formulate them. They certainly have their own context. That's important to understand and to know, to interpret them. But they show us the way in which we can apply, preach, counsel, encourage people, whether they're in our circles or not in our circles, uh, about God and his grace and what, it, and what that means for them to be a child of God. And so they show us a very high thoughtful, but also a very pastoral way of applying the various teachings of Scripture. What is the aspect of your own ministry that's been most shaped by the canons of Dort, Danny, or is the one, or are there a number of aspects that you think are uh, vitally affected by by these documents, both yeah. their form and content? Um, yeah, I would, I would say there's probably two two areas for me as, as I've studied them and I've had to teach through them and answer questions about them over the many years uh, as pastor here. Um, the first is that Catholicity idea. Um, you know, when, when you first pick up a, a copy of the Canons of Dort, you know, at least at least for me, uh, I thought, you know, yeah, this was going to be sort of like the Steele and Thomas version, you know, reformed, you know, Dutch reformed version of, you know, five points of Calvinism. You know, there's that little book by Steele and Thomas, you know, five yep. points of Calvinism defended or defined. I can't remember the title, but um, but then I'm reading these things and thinking, well, this is not as like. It's not as hardcore. It's not as like, uh, you know, utterly black and white. You know, there, there, there's some wiggle room there. And you start to realize, yeah, the, the makeup of the synod was fairly diverse. There were debates. Uh, one of them I talk about in the book, there was actually a, 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 a duel, a challenge uh, for a duel <laughs> on the floor of the synod. I mean, what a, what a great... Uh, what a great illustration of, of I, yeah, real I don't think Calvinists, the PCAGA right? Got that far. That, that's PCA General Assembly, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> My seconds the great thing about that is, uh, you know, uh, Franciscus Homaris, who challenges uh, this other uh, theologian, uh, Martin Martinius, uh, to this duel. The chairman, who himself was known as a as a as a hothead, um, he he was Frisian after all. He wasn't just Dutch; he was Frisian. Um, and, and those who know uh, Fries people know what that means. Oh, yeah. Uh, Got a lot yeah, of those so, in my family. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so the, the, the chairman has to sort of calm, calm things down, and they, and they have a time of prayer. And then right after the prayer is done, Homaris re-challenges the dude to a duel. You know? so, <laughs> after the prayer? Like, you know, that's real cow, you know, when real men, when real men you know, pastor churches. That's right. Uh, so, but, but you realize, yeah, that, so those two, those, those, those men, Martinius, Homaris, 
they were at odds when it mm-hmm. came to the issue of, of, of Christ's death, how, how we can speak of it in terms of, you know, he died for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean? What does it look like? How do we interpret scripture? So there's, there's a, there is actually like a breadth to the reformed tradition. Um, you know, yeah, we, we have confessions, but these, these are meant to unify people mm-hmm. in, in common core uh, issues. And so that was the first thing for me, at least as I've grown, as, as, as I reflected is, you know, the, the cash value of that then, you know, 400 year old synod is like, I can be a peaceable, normal Christian. Um, I, I can, yeah, I can have my, I can have strong convictions, but I can be normal about them. I don't have to be a, a jerk. You know, yeah. you don't, you don't <laughs> have to kill someone over it. You no, know, I don't have, yeah, exactly. I don't have to pull up my sword or my, or my, uh, you know, my, my, my pistol and yeah. load it up. So, um, that's the first thing. It's just being Catholic, being gentle, being loving, being patient with people. Yeah. All uh, the things we associate with you, Danny, yeah. whenever I, you know, Catholic, <laughs> loving, peaceable, <laughs> gentle with people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, mm. And I, I would say the second thing is uh, in, in my own ministry is going back to that fifth point of doctrine that deals with preservation or perseverance of the saints. It's such a pastoral section of the confession. Mm-hmm. Um and it it deals with real struggles. And so again, it just shows us that, you know, we're not dealing with ideas merely when a, when a person comes to me uh, with, with a struggle uh, you know, it's not just for me to immediately to, to figure out the problem, to write out a prescription and send them on their way. There's actual like real psychology and real emotion and, you know, humanity going on that I have to deal with that as a pastor and, the, and that fifth point of doctrine deals with that. I think so beautifully. Mm, yeah. You know, also just in terms of the, uh, <clears throat> the pastoral um, significance of, of the work that, that, uh, that came out of Dort. One of the things that I, I deal with routinely as a pastor, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, but it's there a lot. And I'm sure your experience is, is very similar is is in terms of um the the the, the sense of of the surety that we have from Christ's atoning work. I I, I yep. remember um even as a as a Southern Baptist pastor who had become convinced of the doctrines of grace um sitting with a, a couple um in my church who you know were scandalized by anything calvinist but what I what I went to with them in our conversation was um how do you how do you know um that that your sins have been forgiven. And I took them yeah. right to that. What is for many people, the, the most quote controversial of the, of the five points of Calvinism <laughs> and, and just began asking questions, you know, what happened when Christ died? And it was very interesting to just see them wrestle through and to begin to derive um, comfort and assurance from the fact that Jesus didn't just um, uh, die to accomplish a potential salvation but that he was actually dealing with their sins and my sins decisively on the cross. And so for pastors, there's such great worth in, uh, in, in the, in the, uh, the doctrines of grace, uh, just in typical pastoral care for yep. people's souls. Yeah. And that's, and that goes to one of the, the, the hearts of, you know, what it means to be reformed is mm-hmm. the issue of assurance of salvation, confidence before God, which again, you know, when we think about grace, we're talking about the God of grace uh, that 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 He promises right. 
that, you know, if we put our hope in him, that we have everlasting life. And uh, even through all the thick and thin of life, he's going to be with us. And so, yeah, yeah that, that assurance theme obviously runs throughout too. And, and also, uh, you, you, like me, came out of a Baptistic background, broadly, you know, evangelical, revivalistic. I, I remember before I had really bought into um, Reformed theology and, and before I bought in even to kind of predestinarianism, um, you know, I always thought, well, you know, I can buy into, you know, perseverance of the saints because I, you know, I believe once saved, always saved, yep. But, yep. but, but I had to wrestle through the fact those aren't saying the same thing uh, necessarily, um, that, that perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, um, has a bit more, more, more nuance, maybe we could say than yep. the slogan of once saved, always saved. How would you differentiate between those who are wondering what might be the difference between once saved, always saved? And the perseverance or preservation of the saints. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as I, you know, thought about once saved, always saved or lordship salvation or, you know, whatever the phrase was back in the day, um, you know, when I was kind of going through that myself. Yeah, it was always meant to be, you know, an assuring thing, right. but there was always kind of the caveat of like, well, you know, Christians can, you know, just, you know, wallow in their in their sins. Mm-hmm know, forever and ever. But as long as they, you know, in my context, Pentecostalism, as long as you had, you know, gone forward at an altar call at a revival, prayed the prayer, you know, you had eternal life, but you know, your crown may not be as big in heaven. Right. Right. You know, you, you may not have as many jewels as, you know, yeah. yeah Benny Hinn or whoever this holy man of God <laughs> is who's before you. Yeah. So He's got um, all his jewels on earth, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the ones they've always saved has, it has that sense of uh, what I would just call cheap grace. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, I, I raised my hand, I closed my eyes, I prayed the prayer, whatever, you know, kind of thing to it. Um, whereas, you know, preservation of the saints, we're talking directly about God who's doing the, right. the, the preserving and perseverance. We're, we're dealing with like that the Christian actually has to do something, you know, sh- you know, shudder the thought, you know, as, as a reform right. person, you know, in today's mm-hmm. context, I say we have to do something, yeah. um, but we have to do something. But, but the difference is, you know, it's the God who's preserving us is both, you know, willing and working his own good pleasure out so that I'm able to work at my salvation with fear and trembling. Right. So yeah. there's, there is a, an empowering and an enlivening uh, that the Lord has worked in my heart by, by his powerful grace so that I'm going to persevere. I'm going to want to persevere. And even if I fall like a David or a, a Peter, as the canons use as examples, I'm confident that the God of grace is going to restore me and I'm going to then repent and begin again uh, this journey and this pilgrimage. Uh, I said journey, didn't I, Carl? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you um, did. I yeah. forgive you, my son. Well, that's a Freudian slip. Uh, yeah, yeah. So anyways, there's a big difference between these two things of perseverance of the saints and once they've always saved. Yeah. One thing I like about the book, just in closing, is that I like how you you formatted it. First, you bring up what this opposing doctrine is. And then you really get to the issue of hand. And I, and I think that in that section, you really show why it's still a grace worth fighting for. And then you get into the historical background, which I think is so important to it. And then commentary on the articles. And then lastly, the rejection of errors. I think that is such a helpful format for us to be able to read through the canons and think through why they are relevant today. And that's why your title is so good too, just a grace I mean, you could even have said a grace still worth fighting for. 
Well, I guess it'll be a second edition. I'll take it. <laughs> you have to you know, come to you know? me for your next title uh, ideas. And I'll, and I'll say that I was told I had to do this by, uh, by the fighting theologian. You know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, it's been a great pleasure as always uh, having you on the program, Danny. If I can just purge myself for a moment in closing. Yeah. <laughs> After uh, My lasting memory of Danny was him coming to preach at the church just before I uh, stepped down last year. I think he preached in jeans and a Nehru jacket. Yes. As if, uh, he was channeling the spirit of Benny Hinn into a kind of reformed mould. Uh, Danny, it's always, it's always great to have you uh, on the program. Um, if you're listening today, uh, please go to mortificationofspin.org. We've got a number of giveaways, a few cans of pomade, hair gel. Uh, no, no, we really don't want to produce Danny clones out there. So uh, if you go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, we have a number of copies of Danny's book, Grace Worth Fighting For, uh, for you to enter and, uh, and to win. And if you've read The Canons of Dort, you'll know that there's no such thing as chance, so it's not gambling. Uh, the lot falls uh, as the Lord determines it. So if the Lord has determined Determined that you'll get a free copy of this book, visit our website with a clear conscience. And while you're there, if you feel like making a donation, uh, please click on the donation button. We are a, a listener-supported podcast. In the meantime, it only remains for me to thank you uh, for joining us today, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Well, certainly, I don't think any of us would dare to say, well, this is why Josh Harris apostatized, or this is why this guy from Hillsong, Marty Sampson, apostatized. I mean, we can't get into their minds. However, I do think that it's worth asking some questions because we do need to be reflective. That interview is next time. Join us then. Thanks, Danny. We'll Thanks, have you on Danny, next year right? at the next book you write. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm in the thick of finishing my dissertation, so yeah. I, I'm doing nothing right now other than that and preaching and trying to watch my kids' ball games. How tall is Sip these days? Cyprian, uh, without his shoes on, is 6'7". And how old is, how old is he, remind me? 14. Uh, 14. That's Hayden's age. That's yeah, hilarious. He's huge, 6'7". Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he threw his first dunk down last week in a game, which is nice. awesome. That so, is nice. awesome. Does he even need to leave the ground? Or I can know. he just reach up with his hand and put it in? He does have extremely long arms. It's yeah. just rid- it's ridiculous. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. It's good to speak to you, Danny. Maybe I'll see you in August. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll show up in the back of the classroom and <laughs> sit in reprobate row and do something Heckle funny. <laughs> Feel <Reprobate> free. <laughs> <laughs> we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, man. Bye, Danny. All right, Thanks. See you guys.